Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Meet Stacy. Stacy's on the hunt for a new pair of trendy glasses. Call me picky, but I just can't find the one. Luckily for Stacy, Walmart Vision has virtual try-on. Now she can try on hundreds of frames virtually, then upload her prescription and get new glasses delivered right to her door. Really? <laughs> yeah, really. Well, the hunt just took a turn for the better. Buy your next pair of glasses with virtual try-on from Walmart. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart. Restrictions apply. See walmart.com for details. It has been unbelievably cool hearing from so many of you this week in response to our conversation about making a murderer. Guess what? It's not over. This week, we're going to touch on it once again in kind of a different way. There's a special guest that will be joining us. So thank you so much for your feedback. This case certainly is fascinating, and the conversation that it has sparked is fascinating. Thank you, too, to those of you who have supported this podcast through PayPal donations at our website, crimewriterson.com. And thanks to those of you who have continued to shop on Amazon using our Amazon.com link on our website. As you know, a little tiny piece of your purchases goes to support the podcast. And as you know, every week we like to have Toby Ball read some of the items that you bought using the Amazon link at crimewriterson.com. Camelback Groove Bottles. 0.75 liter slash 25 ounce graphite. Trojan Condom Sensitivity Ultra Thin Lubricated, 12 count. VA Links, HDMI to AV Composite RCA CVBS Video, Audio Converter for TV slash PS3 slash VHS slash VCR slash DVD, Color Box Packaging, White, plus 1.5 meter slash 5 foot high speed HDMI cable. Under Armour Women's UA Pure Stretch Sheer Thong. One size fits all. Nude. Delectables. Bisque Lickable Treat. Tuna and Chicken. Pack of 12. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers on Serial, Season 2, the podcast about a podcast and also about journalism, pop culture, true crime, occasionally other podcasts, and yes, true crime series like Making a Murderer on Netflix. So joining me to do all of that is my true crime co-author and real-life husband, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. I thought Sarah Koenig gave me today off, Rebecca. I'm not happy about this week. Hey, the audience is demanding that we return, Kevin. I can't Give help the it. public what they want. Also on the line with us is journalist, true crime co-author, former defense investigator, and coolest of all, licensed private investigator, Laura Bricker. Welcome back, Laura. Thank you. And joining us also is noir novelist and everyone's favorite no-man, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. 
How's it going? It's going pretty well. Well, so I thought uh, we were going to be talking about Serial Season 2, Episode 5 today. I even sort of like named a folder for all of the files for this episode in advance. And it turns out, surprise, surprise announcement came out this week. Serial is moving to a bi-weekly schedule for the rest of the season. So first, we're just going to talk about that real quick. Sarah Koenig said that they have some new leads, some new interviews. They want to do it right. And they're going to go bi-weekly. Kevin, when you heard this announcement, what was your initial reaction? Well, I was actually surprised that she used the term Zoom because we've been using that. And, uh, you know, the internets have been, we all sort of hooked on to that term. And we have been waiting for the Zoom. And she specifically said, here's where it happened. It's, it's funny because after last week's taping and then the four of us, we went for drinks. And by the way, if you want to see photos of uh, Laura licking uh Margarita salt off of Toby's <laughs> neck. You should go. No, those things don't actually exist. We, we, we started second, talking. Second slam it. <laughs> I, I had I I started thinking and I wanted to change my position and now I want to change it back to what it was. You know, I was thinking. You know, there is no big zoom. This is the story. Bo Bergdahl. We're not, we're we keep thinking that it's going to be something else. You thought we were punked. No, it's just, it, it, but it was very obvious from the opening scene is her statement of purpose. It is the rescue scene. And this whole thing is going to be about the rescue. It isn't going to be about how he is a pawn in this international spy game. But the opening scene of Serial Season 1 was about her nephew. Was the whole season about her nephew? No, no, no. <laughs> and I'm glad she abandoned that because that was right. a bad thing. But right. no, I mean, she she definitely was saying this. I still think that's the story. But now she's saying, okay, it's something bigger. So let's see. Well, we did have one listener say that it was great to hear Sarah say Zoom again because it was key. You guys were right. And I'm thinking, yeah, I don't think it was just us. (laughs) (laughs) So, Laura, what did you think when you heard that cereal was going biweekly? I think my theory was correct. Um, I think she had this one in the can. So she was working on season three. And um, some people have come forward. You know, it is going to be, I don't know, in terms of waiting two weeks to listen to a new episode, how that's going to be in terms of keeping my interest up. And it, it seems like a long time to wait between episodes. So I certainly hope it's worth it. What do you think, Toby? Yeah, I thought it was kind of interesting in that we had talked about how there wasn't as much of a, you know, when the, when the episodes end, it's not like, oh, my God, I can't wait until next Thursday to find out what's next. Like that didn't seem to have that momentum. And now it seems like it's being diluted even more by making people wait two weeks. I'm sure she felt like she needed to do it. But I, I'm a little bit concerned about the momentum of the of the entirety of the program. I actually agree with you because a lot of the podcasts I listen to are released on a biweekly schedule. Some of the fiction podcasts that I know you listen to as well, Toby. Yeah. And when those hit my feed, I don't feel like, oh, can't wait to listen. I feel like, oh, now I have something to listen to that I enjoy. It no feels, sense of urgency. To get I don't it. have a sense of urgency. They, you know, because because the, the two week span does lessen the sense of, you know, that this is part of my life. And do you remember last season, Toby, when Serial took a week off and it was like, oh. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it was traumatic because I think that there is something about the weekly pace. It kind of goes back to when, you know, we were all kids and TV shows were only on TV and they were live, you know, and it was like you had to wait a week to watch them. It was that same feeling. And she recaptured something with the weekly schedule that I worry she's going to lose. Did we talk last week about uh, binge listening to serial season one? You have touched on it a little bit. Because I think there's a lot of us, I mean, very few, except for. Rebecca, I think you're the only person I know that listened to from episode one 
week after week after week, and a lot of us sort of heard about it word of mouth, jumped on the bandwagon, and to ex- to some extent had to binge listen to a couple of episodes to get caught up in real time. So, and you know, for me, I think it was episode six or seven. I remember I was like stuck at an airport and just listened to them all. So, it, it, in a way, for a lot of us, we th- there was no pacing to that. It was. Zoom. We went right to the the end of the story as it was. There really wasn't any sort of waiting around for from episode one to episode two to episode three. And and it seems, given everything about the expectations of season two, the pacing of it, and the fact that everybody is now listening to it in real time. Nobody's stockpiling it so they can listen to four or five episodes at once. It puts the experience for this season at a disadvantage. And I just want to say one thing. I, I, I know Toby and Laura keep saying they think this is, and I think, Becca, you keep saying that you think this is canned. No, I no. don't think it's canned. I, think, I say that. I, yeah. think, I think she has a plan. I think she had a plan. Well, I think that, you know, we're reading an awful lot into this two-minute announcement that she dropped on Thursday, but it, it this tells me that precisely it is not canned. Because right. if, if this is showing, look, we've got a lot here, and we We've got so much we can't just crank this out in a week. You know, this isn't a matter of like, well, now we're going to drop an, an additional interview in between these two interviews that we've already done. It's a I reworking mean, all, of the story, right. but it also could be Kevin that she's having to go back and reconfigure all the remaining episodes right. because the story was done, and now she's having to sort of go back and revise and drop things in earlier on that she didn't have before. Right. And what if she got Bo? What if she was able to secure an interview with Bo Bergdahl himself? That taped stuff. She I mean, doesn't want that. I don't know if that she doesn't want I that. I don't. But that, I want that. <laughs> she doesn't want that. Who Did anybody listen to the New Yorker podcast that she was yeah. on? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she talked about how emotionally draining a year and a half of Adnan was. That, that was. that was tough for her. And that she actually felt very liberated that it, it was uh, Mark, what's the guy, Road? Bull. Bull. Who I'm thinking of the, the the guy from the the Times from last week that it was his relationship his 25 hours it she feels liberated from having that kind of relationship with Bo Bergdahl where she can just tell the story and is not additionally emotionally invested. Toby, I have a question you know, for you. Do you think that even given that she said that, if she were given the opportunity to talk to Bergdahl, do you think she would turn it down? Uh, no. no, I mean I, no. I think it's, no way. Yeah. I, I don't oh, think. No, yeah, right. Yeah. You, you can't. If, if it's offered, I think you have to take it. I, th- I think what's different about this season, like if this had happened last season and it was like, okay, hold up. We're, we've got all this stuff going on. We're going to have to do two-week things. I think there would have been like this heightened anticipation about she's got some break. There's, you know, you'd have a sense of what she's working towards. Like I, I don't feel like I have a sense of what she's working towards with the Bergdahl thing. So – when it's like we, we have to, we have more to work, we got more investigation to do, you know that's good, and I believe her. But I just I don't have a much of a conception of of what it is that she's that she's after. Right. I think that maybe I would have, you know, it's obviously their choice how they want to do this, and um, I think that maybe just a little bit of a hint of what kind of thing they are working toward may have been may have been good here, and I I don't but know. It's teased at the I, end. Okay. You know, it's a puzzle, right? But it, it it is teased, and again, you know, when you look at how they teased episode four from episode three, it ended up episode four being very different than what that tease was. Again, I think it's showing you that right. that it is a, a continues to be a work in progress, just like season one was. And I just don't know if we were, we're more aware of that, or 
you know, again, we just can't start Googling who is Jay right. and find out, you know, sort of how the thing turns out. I don't know. Well, I'll, t- right. I'll tell you what I'm hoping, like my sort of fantasy hope for this is that my very wild conspiracy theory that I spun at the very beginning of the season two of this podcast, which was that this is somehow connected to, you know, the journalist mysteriously dying and people knowing things. And I I sort of hope that people have come out of the woodwork not along the lines of the people that we've heard from already, people in Bo's unit or, you know, Bo's, a family member of Bo's. I want somebody on the periphery who knows something that we couldn't know unless we talked to that person or heard from that person. Not somebody with a point of view, but somebody with a piece of information that is news that has never come out before. That's what I'm hoping for. Mm-hmm. Maybe she got Obama. Yeah, I'm sure. (laughs) Laura, what do you think? Do you have any sort of like aspirational fantasies about what we might hear when she comes back? I'm just hoping for unearthing a great conspiracy that's all going to fall into place. Yes. uh, Yes. I'm really hoping for something really dramatic. Area 51, maybe. Yes. Yes. (laughs) What about you, Toby? I don't know. (laughs) What about you, Toby? Asparagus telling the future. <laughs> I've been blocked by her now. Oh, no. I'm not even allowed to see her tweets anymore. Oh, wow. Oh. Hey, writers on fans out there, start following the Asperomancer and then <laughs> keep Laura Bricker apprised. Maybe it was Bring the thing I said about the P. So, Toby, do you have like an aspirational wish for what this, you know, week off means and what Sarah was teasing us about that she might have something? Do you have a hope or like a fantasy about what that could be? I actually, I don't. And I, I, I realize I think this basically shows that I was pretty wrong about how canned it was, which is you know kind of heartening. It would be awesome if it was you know some kind of conspiracy or there was there was some way of, of drawing more things into it. But I don't have I don't feel like I have much of a, a grip on what she's trying to do, quite honestly. Well, I think that we've talked enough about what we're not talking about this week, so. I think we should pivot to our other favorite topic du jour. Uh, We've talked now a couple of episodes about Netflix is making a murderer, the true crime documentary that doesn't seem to be going anywhere from the fascination of the culture. So this week did see a few more developments in this story. But before we chat about making a murderer, I want to play something for you guys. I spoke yesterday with Colin Miller. He's a professor who teaches classes about evidence at the University of South Carolina Law School. He's a lawyer, of course. But he's also better known, as you probably know, for his evidence prof blog and his work on the Adnan Syed case as a member of the Undisclosed podcast team. Well, he started blogging about the Avery case a couple weeks ago, in particular one piece of evidence with his very typical, very Colin Miller detailed, kind of nerdy, very thorough approach. Let's just take a listen to that interview about that piece of evidence, and then we will talk about it afterwards. The first question I want to ask you is, you know, you haven't watched the documentary. You watched, have you just watched one episode? Just the first episode. Okay, so you haven't even gotten to the murderer part of making a murderer yet. Right. I've just heard about the first rape case and the exoneration based upon the DNA testing. So it's fair to say you don't have any of the... Um, emotional biases that watching 10 parts of a documentary might lead some viewers to have as to whether or not Stephen Avery or Brandon Dassey are guilty or innocent. Is that correct? Right. I've just looked at the court opinions. I have looked at some news stories. I've done some of my own research into EDTA, but I haven't gotten the whole emotional thrust of the documentary by actually really seeing these people talk about the case and uh, the evidence and all the misconduct. 
Okay. Um, well, let's talk about EDTA because it was one part of the documentary that I thought was a little bit confounding. Um, would you mind just giving an overview of how that testing was brought into this case, sort of the circumstances around it being brought into the trial and what it is? Yeah. So basically, uh, there was blood that was found in the victim's vehicle, and that blood was found to be a match for Stephen Avery. And Avery's claim is the blood was planted there by the police sort of as retaliation for his lawsuit based upon his false conviction. And basically, EDTA, it is a preservative and an anticoagulant. And it's used basically when you draw blood and you have a purple-stopped blood collection tube. And so when he was initially arrested back in 1985, they had drawn his blood. And his claim was they took this blood, they planted it in the car. And so basically what was done in this case, rather hastily, was they developed this protocol to test for whether there was EDTA in the blood in the vehicle because the claim, at least by the state, was if there wasn't EDTA in the vehicle, this couldn't have come from the blood collection tube. And the result, at least as far as I can tell secondhand sources, they didn't detect the presence of EDTA in the vehicle, which the state claimed refuted Avery's claim that was planted, whereas the defense claimed there can be false negatives and that there also were issues with the testing that might not make it something that's ironclad and shows it wasn't planted there. Now, when you say they develop protocols, you mean that the state actually worked with the FBI lab, isn't that right? Right. The FBI basically came in and rather hastily developed the protocol. EDTA, it's only really been used, it was used in the O.J. Simpson case, and there was a dispute in that case as to the viability of the testing There was a case in New Jersey, the Pompeii case, where it was deemed inadmissible. And there's a case I've been writing about in my blog. It's actually a really fascinating case, the Kevin Cooper case, where he made the same claim as Avery that his blood was planted on a T-shirt found by the scene of a murder. And there was a big disagreement. This was in California, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, with different judges saying he had a strong case of the police planting this evidence, and then other judges saying basically the EDTA is unreliable and basically is not even admissible under the standards of evidence. Okay, so let's just go back one second, because I think the thing that's confusing to me was that the protocol for the test is developed, basically, in Stephen Avery's case. It's a motion that the prosecution puts forward. The judge grants the motion. The test is then basically developed, and then they use that result to knock down this claim that he makes, that he's been set up and that the evidence has been planted. Is it unusual for a test to be developed during a trial in order to refute a specific piece of evidence or to support a specific piece of evidence? Is that an unusual thing for a new, brand new protocol to be allowed in? Yeah, it's very unusual. And in fact, that Kevin Cooper case that I was mentioning, that's a case where the Court of Appeals sent it to the district court to develop an EDTA protocol over three months. They did the protocol, they did the testing, and then the court still said, this is inadmissible, it's unreliable, And the Dauber case itself, it was a case where plaintiffs were trying to claim the drug Bendectin caused birth defects, and they tried to use a study that was done showing that Bendectin can cause birth defects in animals, not in humans. And the same court, actually, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals in that case, when it was remanded from the Supreme Court, actually said one of the huge things we look at in terms of scientific reliability is independence. Was this done through independent, neutral scientific investigation as opposed to with an eye toward litigation. So 
many people would say in the Avery case, similar to the Cooper case, there's no way under the standards of expert evidence that this test developed specifically for this trial should have been admissible. Right, because basically what we're saying is the prosecution is doing the test to find something, to find ev- you know, to find evidence or to to exclude it, to, to to get evidence knocked out, not an objective test to weigh uh, whether you know whether or not something is there, not like a real scientific experiment. And this right, is this- it's results directed. It's not where you start with a hypothesis and you see what the result is. They are starting from the hypothesis that. In this case, the blood wasn't planted, and yeah, I'm going to cause into question this whole protocol that was developed. Okay, so can you talk about how EDTA came into play in the O.J. Simpson case? Because that's a really interesting story as well. Yeah, and that's something where I need to look for more detail. What I know is generally that O.J. Simpson case, you might, I'm sure, all recall, there was a bloody sock in the case, and there was blood found on a gate by the uh, house where the victims were murdered. And Roger Martz was actually the expert who did the testing. And the defense tried to portray it as that he found EDTA in the blood on the sock and the gate. And this proved conspiracy theory that the police had planted it. Martz, at least in his own defense, tried to claim he actually didn't find EDTA. So there was a lot of confusion overall, which there was a lot of confusion in the case overall. But yeah, it was the same type of thinking where the defense was trying to argue there's EDTA in this and EDTA must have come from O.J. Simpson's blood in a tube as opposed to being left there as a result of the murder. Okay, so asking more broadly, I know that you are you are a professor of evidence at a law school, and I know you've looked at a lot of cases and a lot of cases where evidence has come into play and it's been complicated and there have been claims made by both sides. I think one of the things people have a really hard time wrapping their mind around, while coerced confessions are becoming more of kind of a known quantity with people who look at cases. It's a theme that comes up over and over again, people falsely admitting guilt or, you know, jailhouse confessions, people falsely saying that their, you know, uh, ex-roommate in prison confessed. The idea that evidence could be planted to determine an outcome, you know, uh, that, you know, maybe the cops think somebody did it, so what they do is they just make it a little easier by planting some evidence. Is this a crazy idea, as a lot of people think, or is this something that does happen and that gets cases turned over on appeals? Yeah, I mean, I think the answer is that there are many cases of honorable police officers and people who are legitimately investigating crimes. That said, I mean, I always go to to, to movie examples. I mean, Serpico, the movie Al Pacino, that was a real case about the one sort of honest cop in New York who was blowing the whistle on his compatriots who were engaging in these abusive tactics and pounding evidence. And you see from the Innocence Project, you see from wrongful conviction agencies established in states like Texas, there are plenty of cases where sometimes it's intentional, sometimes it's mere negligence, but for whatever reason, Evidence isn't turned over. Sometimes evidence is planted. And yeah, there's injustice all around. You can't assume it happens in any given case. But one thing I'm looking into now, I'm doing a paper on is it's known as dry labbing, where basically you have a chemist who comes in and claims that they tested drugs and were able to establish it's a particular drug in a particular quantity. And it turns out they didn't actually engage in any testing whatsoever. Well, I think you should probably watch Making a Murder. I think you would find it interesting. And I think that you would also find the portion of the trial in which they bring in the woman who tested for DNA very interesting. I would love to hear your thoughts on it. So I hope if you do watch 
the documentary in full someday that you write about that as well. Is that something that you would think about doing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, right now we're sort of thick into investigating our second season of Undisclosed, so that's my primary focus. But maybe this summer I'll get around to watching it, and if I do, I will certainly be blogging about it. Thanks so much, Colin. I appreciate your time. Yeah, no problem. All right, talk to you later. Bye. All right, take care. So, Laura, we never really discussed that EDTA test in this podcast, but did you find that piece of evidence and the fact that it was included in Stephen Avery's trial as confounding as I found it to be? I think it's something that it sounds like, you know, from everything that we've read and watched and heard about this, that this was a new um, test that was being almost, you know, trial tested during the trial of Stephen Avery so that the prosecution could bolster their case. And there really wasn't any peer review or any sort of standards that were uniformly agreed to out in the community of pathologists. So I, I was surprised and I'm surprised that's something that hasn't been challenged or overturned on appeal because it seems like I don't want to call it junk science, but it seems like it um, is something that needed more work done before the scientific community could agree on, you know, how reliable and how credible this testing was. You know, they're saying we don't know if it is negative because it was too low for the testing range or, you know, they really don't know enough, I think, to use that as credible evidence and testimony in this case. Well, one of the things that Colin talked about, and Toby, I'd love to get your reaction on this because I think, you know, it does line up, as you heard me say with Colin, with the idea of sort of the coerced confession, like the police know what they want, so they just like try to you know, get it, you know, by getting people to say the things they need them to say sometimes, as we saw with the Brendan Dassey interview. Do you think this idea about, you know, this very sort of scientific CSI-like evidence test being brought into the trial to achieve a result that the prosecutor is looking for? Like, how do you react to the idea of that? Is that something that's, does it surprise you? It doesn't surprise me. It does disturb me. You know, you can read a lot about around the country, different places, like there's sort of a sort of industry of kind of dubious science to convict people. Like the bite mark analysis is something that's come up recently, and I believe in New York State they're they're not accepting it or, or something's going on with that. Anyway, it seems that the prosecution in a lot of places gets away with using things like this, which you know hasn't gone as Laura said through peer review. It really seems like it's kind of done on the fly, and it seems as though it was constructed with a determined end in mind. What's your reaction to that, Kevin? You know, this reminds me an awful lot of the cell phone evidence in the non-case that Susan Simpson looked at. And I'm, I'm really wondering whether or not there was a Fry Standard hearing about this technology. In the, uh, the documentary, there was the way, a... Qu- Colin would be so proud to hear you ask about whether or not there was a Fry Standard hearing in this technology. Yeah, Good you know, for you, law oh, student. Oh, thank you. <laughs> You know, in the in the documentary, there was a brief description, you know, which is sort of like some exposition about moving things along, which said the judge allows this, which dot, dot, dot. I mean, I guess you could probably read into it. That there was there were probably motions and there was, you know, objections by the defense for allowing this in. Um, so I don't know if they had a fry standard. Uh, Fry hearing about this, uh, and that would deter. And you know, I guess for those who didn't listen to that episode of Undisclosed, the the Fry standard is essentially a hearing in which a a judge must determine whether or not the science uh, is good enough to uh, 
be considered evidence or, 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 or strong evidence. You know, fingerprints weren't always considered uh, and reliable. And lie detectors used to be considered reliable. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, and other, other kinds of, you know, DNA, of course. One of the things in, in Adnan's appeal is that they want to point that Christina Gutierrez should have known to ask for a Fry hearing on the cell phone evidence because as we start, as they and the rest of us pick apart the cell phone stuff, we know now you can't say that so-and-so was in Lincoln Park based on the ping of their cell phone because in 1999 it didn't work that way at all. So I'm, I'm really wondering, did they do this or not? Maybe they did. I would think that these lawyers are sharp enough to do that. It just wasn't part of the documentary. So it is sort of left to the viewer to assume that maybe, oh, the uh, the police, sheriff, FBI are sort of getting away with this. Were you surprised to hear, Kevin, that the only other trial in which EDTA evidence had been allowed in was the O.J. Simpson trial? Well, I mean, yeah, O.J., great, everything that trial, the was in O.J. So. Uh, Laura and Toby, did you, do you remember anything about the O.J. Simpson trial and what a horrific mess that trial was in terms of organization and evidence and sort of the way things were laid out? No. I, I hate to tell you how young I was when that was on, but I do remember it being on TV all the time. Hey, kids, was there was once so upon a time there was a man named O.J. Simpson. <laughs> he had been a football player, and everybody really liked him because he was in The Naked Gun. And then something bad happened. The only, the only thing I saw was there at the beginning they were interviewing some guy who supposedly sold him a knife, and they're asking him to describe who they sold the knife to. It's just like it, it was O.J. Simpson. <laughs> I don't need to describe him. It was O.J. Simpson. All right, you know what we're going to do is we're going to put a Wikipedia link on our website to the O.J. Simpson trial just for the two of you. No, not just for the two of them. I, I think if they didn't watch the O.J. Simpson <laughs> trial, I think you and I probably fall into a unique category of people I, yeah. for whom you could be really young and also want to watch I was a reporter. I did, yeah. Every afternoon I did an update on the case. So, yeah. yeah I, I, I get it. I get it. But no, they, everybody. But so many people, you know, I feel like I stuck out for not not being that focused on it at the time. I mean, people were just really... Toby was the contrarian for a long, long time. Huh? Exactly. For 20 years now. <laughs> well, let me just put just it this way. If following I, in ignorance. If I were a prosecutor sort of looking to have a brand new technology entered in as a test that was being developed, by the way, during the trial, which to me is the craziest part of this whole thing, that would not be a case that I would want to cite or talk about as far as, like, how the evidence bore out and, and showed this, that, or this. Because, A, it tested negative for EDTA. O.J. Simpson was not convicted. <laughs> Your Honor, I'd like to point out that in the case of California versus O.J. Simpson. <laughs> yeah, the trial was, uh, I don't, you remember, the trial was a mess. The trial, the, the average evidence presented, it was presented in a strange and order. The gloves don't fit. And there, the, but then, and there was a lot of allegations of police tampering that's right. and contamination, cross-contamination. And, right, yeah. that's right. It was it was a disaster. There was a guy named Cato, and it was really weird. <laughs> I, remember, I remember him. I remember him. Yeah. Yes. Okay, so some Something else that happened this week, besides my conversation with Colin Miller, which, by the way, and you should all know this, Colin is on the case. You heard him say that he hasn't watched a documentary, but he's looking at the files, and you know he sort of claims he's busy with other things. But if I know this guy, like that blog could get very interesting very quickly. I would keep an eye on it if you're interested in like sort of seeing a very very academic approach to Stephen Avery case. We will post a link to Colin's evidence prof blog on our website, CrimeWritersOn.com. It is worth watching. So something else that happened this week in relation to the Avery case, and I heard about it through an urgent text 
text message I received from one Laura Bricker was that Jody Stachowski, Stephen Avery's ex-fiance, who we saw an awful lot of in the documentary, told a producer from The Nancy Grace Show that Avery is a monster, that he was abusive, and that he coerced and threatened her to say nice things about him. She basically said, he's guilty. Laura... I got the urgent text from you. I would like to hear from you what your reaction to that interview was that we saw on the Nancy Grace show. Wow. I mean, I don't know if I can get past Nancy Grace um, to talk about it, but I, I, you know, it's really not uncommon for women that end up in sort of these unhealthy domestic violence relationships to change their stories like this. And I, I just, I don't find her credible. I don't, it's not to say that I'm diminishing that she may have been an abused woman or anything like that. But, I mean, she, she ate rat poisoning. Like, mentally, how how healthy can somebody be that's in that situation? And, and sure, she may have been desperate. But, you know, I, I smell something up here. There were some rumors on the Internet that she may be dating one of the Avery relatives now, the, the people that are on the anti-Stephen Avery bandwagon. And I don't know, maybe Kevin can sound in on this, what these type of shows pay people to go on. But I, I didn't find her to be that credible. And I'm, I'm disturbed that there were more cat terror allegations <laughs> Toby, what did you think? Did you tune in to the Nancy Grace show to watch this interview? I uh, actually watched it on YouTube later. <laughs> wow. Smart, which, smart of you. Which I've I've never actually watched Nancy Grace before. Okay, Ooh. let's and... pause this conversation for a second then, and let's talk about Nancy Grace, shall we? Little record oh. scratch, metaphorically speaking. Okay, if there are kids in the room, get them out of here. <laughs> They should not be listening to this. My kid came in the room when it was on, and I was like, get him out of here. I have had limited exposure. (laughs) I've had limited exposure to Nancy Grace, and every time she sort of pops up in my sphere, like, for example, she popped up in The Staircase, you know, she was in that, she popped up in this documentary. Mm -hmm. She does pop up, and then occasionally I'm flipping through, and I see it, and I have exactly the reaction that you just said. What did you just say, Toby? Uh, I think it was, what the fuck? Um, my favorite technique that she uses is when she asks somebody a question and they're clearly being reasonable, saying, well, you know, whether or not she was a domestic violence victim is not related to whether or not Stephen Avery murdered Therese. And she goes, what? Wait, wait, Kevin, did you hear I'm what he just said? I'm going to go to somebody else. <laughs> okay, so, so she does, that's too polite, Kevin. Oh, my God. So, she Toby, just... as a Nancy Grace neophyte, let me hear a little bit more about what you think about that uh, that program. Well, you know, I they talk about you know, like newscasters and stuff like, are people comfortable inviting them into your living room at night? And I never like quite understood what that was all about until I saw her. And I was just like, what the hell? It'd just be awful to have her like physically present right here. So uh, it, it's crazy. Like the, the thing that I kept flashing back on was when uh, Dean Strang was, was talking about unwarranted confidence like people have confidence in things that they that are actually up up in the air and her just like sort of rock solid confidence and the idea if somebody didn't agree with that that they were out of their minds and and to do that on a national tv show about cases that are kind of ongoing. I just, is she like that all the time? Yes. I, I, yeah. yeah. <laughs> she's like never she's not like worse. that. I mean, watching, watching on the staircase, and I don't think this is a spoiler, but if somebody's watching the staircase, you might blink it off for a second. But, but when she does show up in the staircase, it, it just seems it's so off. Yeah. From what 
you can see the people experiencing and you know how agonizing it is and, and, and all this stuff that's going on. And then she's just out there like bloviating and she's ignorant about a lot of the stuff. Right. And she she takes somebody like she looks at the interview with Jody and she says, you heard what she said. How could you say that he's innocent after you heard what she said as if. And again, I don't want to diminish that, you know, she very likely may have been the victim of domestic violence as if what she said was definitely true because it was my producer that asked her that question. It's insane. It's And I'm comfortable as a journalist saying that that show is insane. I felt so bad. I just have to say I felt so bad for the reporter from Wisconsin who got like three words out when he was trying to say something before she cut him off. And then we never saw him again. You mean the reasonable reporter from Wisconsin? He yeah, was just, the yeah. reasonable guy. They, he, she's like, ask him a question and he starts to answer. And she's like, no! And that was like the end of it. That's part like, of the problem happened? of the show is that there is, I, I mean, she is definitely, okay, an advocate for the prosecution uh, and she always thinks she's on the right side. And there's a sort of lack of, of objective analysis that it's always... The, you know, the person arrested did it. And a lot of times it is. And we have the reason, to, you know, to sort of root against the right. bad guy who's been arrested. She was very anti-Scott uh, Peterson, for example, from the very beginning. She's she, all over that. There was some story about she grilled some parent of some missing kid, like I, I, who hadn't been arrested or named as a suspect. And I'm trying to remember if, if like later that person committed suicide i don't know if you google that i mean she's just really i mean just like really um you know she's a, a former prosecutor yeah i mean I, she's a former prosecutor yeah that's where she kind of, she she gets her justice issues from and you know so you could see that you know but she's shrill it's like yeah. it's, it's as if christina gutierrez it, um survived and had got a TV show, yeah, and you know had uh, a, and was cloned somehow with Paula Dean, and they sort of got put together <laughs> yeah. into this one character. Now, Laura, you you remember Peter Odom? It was uh, well, that's, that's Hampshire the prosecutor. Time I watched this was when Peter Odom went over to become a defense attorney, and he got some facial hair and was on the show for a while. Yeah, now Peter, who was the prosecutor in in my book Wicked yeah. Intentions, uh, he left New Hampshire, right, opened a practice in Atlanta, and. You know, came on as in the rep- the role of the defense attorney because that's what he was doing now. And certainly, the times I watched it, I mean, was treated as if he himself had gone over and mutilated the corpse. You know, it's just why why do you even have you know the four shot or a four box? You know, you have all these Brady Bunch like uh, graphics up with different talking heads, and you just want to beat up on the ones that want to defend them. Right. It was but I'm just, sure a lot of our listeners actually do like Nancy Gray, so sorry, just not my cup of tea, guys. <laughs> no judgment, I, guys. No yeah. judgment. I liked Dr. Drew afterwards. That sort of helped me calm down. He's great. They talked, yeah. They mental health. I hadn't watched him since he was on that sex show on MTV. and uh, But he had, like, they talked about mental health. They were a little more reasonable on his show. Yeah. So anyway, Toby, back to the substance of the conversation. <laughs> what were we talking about, Nancy Gray? This is what, see what oh, happens oh. when Serial takes a week off? Jody. Uh, yeah. Okay. We have no structure. Yeah. Jody. Without Sarah Koenig, guys, she's our anchor. She keeps us together like she's our glue. She's busy Zooming. <laughs> okay. So back to what we were talking about before, Toby. Jody, what did you think about her interview? What did you think about her allegations? What were your impressions? I understand you took notes. I did take some notes. <laughs> I've already gone through a few of those. Like, what the fuck, I think was one of the notes. Um, (laughs) It's hard. Like, it's hard to know based on what you see in that documentary and then what you saw on Nancy Grace, 
relationships are complicated. Again, as, as a couple of the people on Nancy Grace were trying to say, even if he's abusive, that doesn't equal he's guilty of murder. I, I found it very strange. I also thought it was strange that they had a Manitowoc sheriff. I don't, I don't know if it was a deputy or whatever, but somebody from the office. That's right. was one of the people commentating. And that to me seemed a little bizarre. It seemed inappropriate. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just, I guess but, if you watch the documentary, you, you don't necessarily trust what's going to be coming out of them. Oh, but you know they weren't involved in that case. Remember? There was oh, a conflict. True. Yes. And then, you know, she does talk at one point about some conversation that she had with Stephen Avery and that she thinks that it would be in the police phone records, which I thought was kind of interesting because that, that is one way to kind of check up on her story. And I thought the way Nancy Grace was sort of uh, trying to characterize people as thinking Stephen Avery was a hero, which I don't I, I don't think that's the right characterization, at least from my mind. I mean, I think he the people who are supportive of him see him more as a victim than a hero. You know, I don't I don't think he did anything particularly heroic. If, if what happened is what people think happened, he's a victim twice of being kind of set up. My final thing was like almost nobody agreed with her on our show. Like she just kept like going to people and they'd be like, well, I, you know, I yeah. don't see how that relates to this. And then she cut them off and go to the next person and they wouldn't <laughs> agree. I think there's great and, videotape that they want to use. And I, I mean, I can see the producer standing around the table talking about tonight's show or tomorrow's show. And this is like we have this great. It made piece news. Of, I mean, that little well, yeah. pieces of that were shown I mean, on other people news. People are going to love this. Yeah. And, and so we're going to build a show around this, whether it's it's got a lot of weight or not. Because it's stuff that people haven't heard before. The one thing that I was confused about, that I didn't understand the timeline, because the parts of the documentary we saw, either she was in jail or he was incarcerated. So we saw almost their entire relationship that we saw was them on the phone together, right? So we saw... The only time we saw them together was in that archival footage when he was going to court for his... Right. You know, outside the courthouse holding hands. Was that her or was it the other... That was her, you know, for the civil suit. Right. And then, right, she's... Right, she comes back, and the only thing that was weird was, you know, she showed the telephone bill that showed, like, the time that she called, and she even pointed out this was supposed to have been, like, right in the middle of the... You know, I think it's odd because, you know, you really, when you are a victim of domestic violence or you're in an abusive relationship, it does take time once you're separated from the abuser to sort of, for lack of a better term, get back to normal or to f- come out from underneath their spell. It, Ten years, yeah, perhaps. I don't I don't know. So I, I will not say that I think that she's lying. Right. I, I would say that, you know, if, if today she were testifying that she would have some credibility issues. Right. And I'm not so much saying that she's lying is that the story that he made her say nice things about him in the documentary To me, I don't understand because she was on the phone with him during the documentary and all those calls were recorded and their conversations were just like, I miss you, I miss you, I miss you, I miss you. (laughs) And, you know, they didn't know. Those are the ones that the the, uh, documentarians chose to use. Right. If they also captured a recorded phone call where he says something like, well, you better make me look good on this, they may have chose not to use it because it, it it was extra contextual or something like that. Um, but you know, there's only sort of one little weird piece of evidence that it might back up her claim that it was an abusive relationship. And that's the idea that the leg chains were actually found at the house. And, you know, we've talked about, we, okay, well, in in the Dassey 
confession, uh, there was a story about how, you know, the victim was chained to the bed. And, you, you mean know, the story they told him to say? Story could have been the story they told him to say. <laughs> right. But based on the on the, the fact that there actually were chains found in the house. And what Stephen Avery said is, this is for my girlfriend and I, we do this. Now, you could say that maybe, you know, we assumed that, you know, this was a consensual sexual act. It may not have been. Right. Because, right. you know, we've looked actually our next book called Dark Heart, which will be out in March. Won't say anything more than that. The same kind of dynamic is right, there. Right, Where somebody the, is uh, drawing somebody into a relationship that is different than the one they think they're going to have, but they go along with it because they're an abuse victim. Yeah. So yeah. it's just that one little thing about the chains, that's yeah. all. The, the other thing that I think kind of points that there's a little bit of history of that is I believe in the first episode they show some letters that he wrote to his first wife or I guess his, his ex-wife. He didn't have a second mm. wife. Well, with mm-hmm. whom he had two kids, right? With whom he had two kids. And they're they're pretty – he was very angry, violent, and aggressive. Yeah, yeah. Now, and so that that seems consistent, uh, although it's not evidence. You know, I, I honestly don't have a hard time believing that Stephen Avery may have been an abuser. I don't have a hard time with that. To me, that is though completely separate from whether or not he had a fair trial in this murder in which. There's a very questionable set of behavior by the cops and the prosecutor. To me, it's just a separate issue. And Laura, if if uh, you know you were on that defense team and there there were allegations or even arrests, wouldn't Stephen Avery's uh, team move to exclude prior bad acts as being prejudicial? Yeah, and that's one of the things. Um, some of my defense attorney friends this week were kind of having debate about why his team didn't have Stephen Avery testify. Some of them were saying they should have had him testify. But if they had put him up on the stand, that would have opened the door to the prosecution asking him about some of those prior convictions and prior bad acts. I wanted to say one thing. The letters from jail that Nancy Grace made such a big deal about that Stephen Avery was um, writing to Jody. You know, this is very common. She's making this sound like this is like, you know, some great information that she's unearthed. People incarcerated that have people on the outside, whatever relationship they're having with them, write letters like this all the time. I've seen far worse letters than this. I've listened to jail calls that are far worse than this. And his threat that he was going to say she was drunk driving, I just found it absurd that they kept spending so much time on that because, you know, it's completely after the fact. There's no proof of any evidence that she was drunk driving. So I found that just somewhat absurd. And and also along the same lines when she was like, you know, she said she wanted to be removed from the documentary and they put her in anyway. Well, I'm I'm sorry, but tough luck. I'm sure she agreed to it 10 years ago and signed some sort of release form when she started working on it. And everybody gets cold feet. She was already in there. Yeah, I I don't think it should be hugely surprising that their relationship was bad because there was that protective order in place during the filming the documentary that she alluded to. She said it was like the cops' conspiracy to keep them apart, but... I mean, I think we all know that that's not typically why a protective order is put in place. It's requested, usually, a protective order. And then she was the one violating it by having contact with him. Actually, can I say, a lot of times a protective order is automatically put in place when there is any sort of simple assault charge. Um, I can't tell you how many cases I went out on where somebody gets arrested for a simple assault charge or, like, you know, false imprisonment, which is when they're preventing somebody from leaving, um, ripping the phone from the wall, things that were all alleged in this case. In a lot of places, a protective order is automatically put in place in those instances. And I spent many a day going out and taking statements from victims in those cases who wanted those orders dropped 
because they wanted to. And obviously they were in the throes of domestic violence, but sometimes it's automatically put in place Mm -hmm. through the criminal uh, court system. I have an idea. We've been sort of teasing the last few weeks that we wanted to get listeners involved. And I've said a few times that we've gotten more email than we've ever received before from listeners. That is true. And I have a few here, and a lot of them are long, but I just want to pull out a couple of things um, and ask you guys about them. Are you guys game to answer some listener questions right now? Yeah, no. sure, yeah. <laughs> no. All right, Toby, I guess you're not going to get any <laughs> listener questions then. All right, all right, all right. <laughs> this one's from Lindsay, and she's from the U.K., and she actually has two questions. One of them I'm going to throw your way, Laura, and the second one I'm going to throw to you, Kevin. Lindsay's first question is that, you know, she loves crime fiction. She loves mysteries, so she's watched various U.S. TV series like Law & Order, etc., And she's very confused about the variations in processes and laws between states. And she's hoping that we can explain this. She says, I know from a a relatively small island where the law and the policing should follow the same rules throughout, but it seems so strange to me that U.S. systems aren't more unified. Is this a problem with cases that you have dealt with? Laura, I would love for you to answer that question because I believe that didn't you write a book about a case that took place in another state as well? I did. Um, I wrote a, a story about a, a story, a true story about a case, um, and the murderer was from Missouri, where it is the state that had a death penalty. And he moved um, him and his wife to Massachusetts, a state that had no death penalty, and that's where he slowly began poisoning his wife. And a lot of people felt that he intentionally did that to avoid the stricter penalties in his home state. You know, I think, especially where we are in New England, some of these states have laws on the books that are just so outdated, but they're still there. So I do think we all sort of operate independently. And it kind of reminds me what I was talking about last week with lawyer oversight boards and rules of professional conduct from state to state, where in New Hampshire, we have this uh, professional conduct committee that would clearly have sanctioned Len Kaczynski. Wisconsin, apparently not so much. Kevin, Lindsay's second question is for you. She talks a little bit about how, in the same way that you had questions about some of the evidence that was left out of the documentary that perhaps didn't fit the narrative of the documentary that they were trying to present and that concerned you a little bit, she's wondering if when we write books about crimes, if there's sometimes evidence or points of view left out that don't fit with the narrative of the book we're trying to write and how it is that we go about making those decisions, what to leave in and what to maybe not put in because it's not good for the story. Mm, yeah, that's that's tough because it is sort of a case-to-case basis. I, I, I think it's, sometimes it's it's smaller stuff that just doesn't seem to be relevant Um to you, yeah, well, but yeah, <laughs> but or, but to the crime in question, and to the theory of the crime. Now, you know, the big difference between the kinds of books that we write and these documentaries is that it really is taken from the good guys trying to catch the bad guys versus the bad guys trying to prove they're good guys. Although, to be fair, one of our defendants in our books who was convicted of murder, Seth Bader, we know Laura also is familiar with this particular inmate, he actually is continuing to profess his innocence, and Mm -hmm. we've been ignoring those claims (laughs) since our book came out. You've ignored them too, Laura? I I have. Actually, his old house is right across the river from my house. (laughs) Oh, well, you find some of the pipe bombs. So how do you make the decision to ignore those claims? (laughs) Well, I don't think we actually don't. I mean, I think we include that, but I think you can include it contextually. We told the nonfiction story of how the crime went down, how the arrest was made, how the trial turned out. In the epilogue, you know, we certainly gave, in that case, Seth his due, where he said there was evidence that they wanted to bring. They had like, you know, three claims that were actually very 
interesting, you know, about how uh, there was a, an alternative suspect and how a, another person had heard this person make some claims and then how somebody in jail heard the same thing and gave him that space, but also sort of saying, you know, this is this is what he says. You know, I think for the most part, we're looking more at sort of the roadmap of how things got from A to B. I, I, I can't really say that, you know, there was something so egregious that we left it out. Although the more that we talk about serial and the staircase and making a murderer, you know, I do tend to think, boy, it would be better looking back at some things that we were like saying if we had more doubt. Sometimes we do have like this red herrings that are built in, but you know, that that is a way to strengthen the narrative is to create more conflict. And that is a way. Usually the way, way we do that is when, we, when it gets to trial, we always sort of intimate that the prosecution's case is actually pretty weak and the defense attorney is way better than he or she actually <laughs> is. Because you, you still want the reader to think at the end that maybe the bad guy is going to be acquitted. Right. So I don't know. I guess it, it's hard. You know, I think you have to really look and then evaluate whether or not a, it's truthful, and does it become a distortion by leaving it out or playing it a different way? I think you can modulate. Like, how much do you want to say about this? And you know, which is why I think in in making a murderer, you know, talk a little more about some of these other people living around here, right? Because you know, maybe they're not involved, but start to get us thinking about some other things. And providing some context, I think, really helps. Okay, so Toby, um, we also heard from a guy named Patrick. Now, I have heard from a bunch of lawyers and actually a couple of prosecutors, uh, but Patrick is actually a former prosecutor, which is why I think he was comfortable sharing his first and last name with me. A couple of the other prosecutors that have been corresponding with me have declined to share their identities, so therefore I have declined to use their comments on the show because who knows? Maybe they're not really prosecutors. But anyway, this guy is a former Bronx DA, and I looked it up, and he He, in fact, was a former Bronx DA. He says, there are times listening to your show, I wish you invite an attorney on to discuss and explain to your audience why things are done, to explain the nuances of how police actually work. For example, one of your panelists stated that trials are about finding out what happened. They are not. Trials are about whether or not the state can prove a crime beyond a reasonable doubt based on the information they present. They are not searches for the truth or who did it. And further, please understand the police are in the business of making arrests, not necessarily getting to the bottom of what happened. I think that's really interesting. Toby, what is your reaction to that uh, comment there from Patrick, the former prosecutor? The first part, you know, I think that's right. It's a competition between the state and the defense to try and find, you know, they're both trying to prove a case. As far as the police just being out there just to make arrests, I don't know. I mean, I, I think if he was here, I'd, I'd ask him a follow-up question because I don't think – it's hard for me to think of the police as just, you know, just making an arrest. You know, they, they need to at least get to, to a certain level of understanding of what happened before they can identify who they want to arrest, right? So I, I I think there's probably some nuance to that that I'm not getting. Yeah. So a lot of times, you know, th- what I witnessed as a defense investigator when I went out and actually started interviewing witnesses and cases is that the police sometimes tend to, I don't want to say overcharge, but they do. They, they charge as many charges as they can, knowing that these cases are going to be negotiated when they get to court. So when somebody has a vigorous defense and sends someone out to actually follow up with witnesses, they'll find out which charges of the smattering that they put out there they can actually prove. 
I just remember watching NYPD Blue, which was very much about making arrests. It was like, <laughs> who's going to get the collar? Remember, that was always like the expression they used. And it was like a car dealership, like who's going to get the sale? It was always like, who's going to get the collar? About getting credit for the arrest really does, did seem to be the goal. I, I don't know if that's the case where we live here, but, you know. Well, I, just don't, I don't think, generally speaking, that cops go to work thinking like, who am I going to grab today? I'll just grab whomever. I mean, they're not the secret police. You know, uh, I think that they generally think that they they have good intentions and that the, they think that the people they are arresting are guilty of what they're accused of. They are sometimes wrong about that, just like all of us. And, you know, what is disturbing about these incidents to me of, of like police brutality that we see is we want our good guys to be good guys. And so when the ones who among us are supposed to be the, the best end up being the worst. It's very heartbreaking in that sense. You know, there are still a lot of great cops who have been dishonored by the actions of some. And so uh, I, I like to think that law enforcement in general does have good intentions, but it's, 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 it's an organization made up of humans. I do think Patrick is right that it, the, the trial isn't about getting to what happened. It's about winning. It is about, yeah, it is about either getting the conviction or getting the acquittal. And so I think he's right. But I think that's what, you know, that's what Serial and Making a Murder were all about, Mm -hmm. was that it wasn't about trying to get to the truth of it. Mm -hmm. It was. They were both about the system. Prosecution had a case that they were trying to make, and the defense was trying to counter it. Whereas on Law & Order, my favorite show, which, by the way... I would love to do an episode about some time, but Kevin thinks that's a terrible idea. Uh, sometimes the DAs will convict, and then after the trial, they'll realize they made a mistake, and they'll be like, we got the wrong guy. Let's go after the other guy, which I guess Patrick is saying probably doesn't happen a lot. And Corruptus speak- optimity est. What does that mean? Which is Latin for, I'm probably getting this, Latin for corruption of the best is the worst. And that's what it, how I feel like when I, when I see things about, like, cops doing the wrong thing because we all invest something in society into that individual we're going to give you the right to go through this red light really fast because it's important to what you need to do you can carry this gun because it's important what we need you to do and when those people abuse that you know it's a crime against all of us and that's just you know i don't want to get into ferguson and all this other stuff but i'm really heartbroken by that that our when our good guys aren't good guys Imagine growing up in a space, though, where you never think of them as good guys at all, which is what it's like for a lot of people in America. I'll give you that, yeah. Okay, so speaking of experts, we heard from another interesting expert. This is someone named Sarah, who also gave me her full name, which, by the way, I do really appreciate. She starts with a compliment before I gush about your podcast. One bit of info discussed in the latest podcast. I don't know if you're going to talk about making a murderer again. We are, Sarah. We are. (laughs) But this may be of use to you in other cases. I'm a pathologist, not forensic, just the regular type. But FYI, sweat consists of salt water, no cells, so no DNA. The DNA is in skin cells, so any skin cells will do. For instance, a toothbrush or hairbrush rubbed on the keychain would yield DNA. But knowing that Stephen didn't own underwear, he may not have had a toothbrush or hairbrush. Oh, my God. So then uh, Sarah goes on to say that uh, if we ever want to talk to a pathologist who can talk about things like 
vials with needle punctures and bodily fluid testing and non-suspicious autopsies. She's more than happy to have us give her a call and uh, fill us in on those issues. So I want to thank Sarah for that email. That was a great clarifying piece of data that you gave us. And I believe she was calling you out, Kevin, for saying the expression sweat DNA, which apparently Uh, does not exist. And finally, I I read it on the internet. It must have been true. (laughs) And finally, I wanted to mention one final email from Christine, who says, Crime writers, you are my Christmas morning podcast. Please do not go bi weekly like cereal. I just couldn't take it. Oh, wow. I love that, Christine. Well, I just want to say, Christine. We will figure it out. I'm certainly in to not go bi-weekly if we can help it. And I just want to ask you guys, where are you at? Would you be willing to maybe talk about something else every other week and stay weekly for Christine and anybody else who isn't looking forward to a week without us? What do you think, Toby? It's going to get pretty random. (laughs) (laughs) What about you, Laura? Are you in? Well, I'm in because, you know, otherwise I'm going to just be talking to my cats here. So I think this is good. (laughs) And what about you, Kevin? Well, Rebecca, if you're here, no one's cooking dinner. So (laughs) I guess I got to show up. (laughs) Your place is in the studio, Kevin, not the kitchen. (laughs) God knows that's true. So before we wrap it up for the week, I would like to pivot to my favorite segment on the show, a little something I like to call Crime of the Week. The most dangerous man to ever have the nickname Shorty, Mexican drug lord El Chapo Guzman, was recaptured several months after an incredibly sophisticated Hollywood-esque underground jailbreak. But just after news of his arrest broke, Rolling Stone magazine published an interview done with El Chapo by, of all people, Spicoli himself, Sean Penn. Oh, now I know why he did it. (laughs) (laughs) And the world let out a collective giant What the? So here's the question. If a mainstream journalist was the one who had obtained this interview, would there be the same kind of backlash? Would it have been okay for this most wanted criminal in the world to have been interviewed by anyone, much less Sean Penn? Is there a little bit of hypocrisy here or not? First to you, Toby. Yeah, it's a good question. I was, we actually, where I work, we have a uh, woman who's from Mexico working with us this year. So I was talking to her about it and she thought it was pretty rich the way Sean Penn was playing up how dangerous it was. And in that, you know, he was being protected by the drug dealers to, so that they could do this interview. And she said, journalism in Mexico is extremely dangerous. Many journalists are murdered, tortured, threatened. I mean, it's a real life threatening occupation. So she was sort of taking objection with him kind of playing at journalism, but that doesn't really answer your question. No, I, I think it does answer my question. I think that what you're kind of saying is that it was, it was farcical that Sean Penn embarked on this adventure and then is, you know, trying to play himself up like 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 he's, you know, Glenn Greenwald, you know, on the no fly list kind of intrigue going on. Yeah. I mean I mean he was he was almost requested, you know, I mean it was set up for him. And, you know, he's pretending he's a journalist, but it wasn't that El Chapo was like, I'm going to get the great American journalist Sean Penn (laughs) to come and tell my story. It's completely something different. What? I thought you were Sean Hannity. (laughs) (laughs) Laura, what what did you think? Do you think that we are being hypocritical in sort of saying that Sean Penn was uh, creating a little drama, not doing the right thing by flying down there to have an interview with El Chapo? He was definitely creating drama. I mean, he's he's obviously not got a journalistic background, so I think it's hard to say 
what kinds of questions he would be asking and not asking. And, and it's, he's obviously approaching this more from like a screenwriting standpoint. I just found some of these details of his interview, very almost theatrical, that the two of them sat down and dined on tacos and tequila. And they were accompanied by this woman who um, has had guest shots on Jane the Virgin. So it was, it was almost like a, a choreographed show, but it was so dramatic how he was surrounded by the 30 to 35 armed guys. And I don't know. It, it was bizarre. Kevin, I'm going to go to you now. What do you think about Sean Penn's interview with El Chapo? You know, I, I really wanted to find the things to like tear it apart, but I, I, I read it. It's an extremely long article. And it reminded me of like a Hunter S. Thompson kind of journey. The writing wasn't bad at times. It was self-indulgent. You know, oh, like the to talk about is bad. No, I disagree. I think that you know, in parts, it, it is. You know, like you know, <laughs> but but if I didn't tell you it was Sean Penn, and you're looking at if you're if you're reading without prejudice, you'd say three quarters of it is his journey to get there, and the situation, and then the last half sort of the Q and A which isn't terribly interesting. But, you know, if we're talking about how what we loved about Serial was that there was this sense of Nancy Drew adventure, well, here's Sean Penn being one of the Hardy Boys going into this very exotic and strange and obviously very dangerous, and he has some very pithy self-observations about, you know, what he's doing. I, I guess he, I mean, he says he has done journalistic pieces before. I don't know what they were. He wouldn't be my first go-to if I'm the editor of Rolling Stone for this, but he had access, and I don't think that the article was terribly bad. I don't think he did anything wrong. I don't think any—I mean, the bigger question, everybody said, oh, he aided and abetting. And like, if it were any other journalist, you'd still say, no, not that journalist's responsibility to take somebody into custody. You know, it's it, you're there as a journalist, and you're there to get a story, and it's for— the other people to worry about that. I'll tell you what my concern was. To the extent to which it just sort of, ugh, kind of makes me feel ooky. Rolling Stone kind of had some low years and then sort of has ascended in the last decade or so. Notably, it was the Rolling Stone piece that took down General McChrystal Mm -hmm. when uh, they sent that stringer who may or may not be tied to the Bo Bergdahl case uh, to interview him. And he got a lot of what apparently McChrystal and his men thought were off-the-record comments that were never off the record, and they very boldly and bravely published this story, which ended up really changing the leadership in the United States military. And everybody was like, oh, yeah, Rolling Stone, they're back. My understanding is that El Chapo was able to review this story and was able to get a little bit of, like, editing input into the story, and he didn't request any changes, but that Rolling Stone disclosed that he was able to read the story I actually have more of a problem with that than I do with the fact that I think the Sean the Penn angle is ridiculous. But if any reporter had gone and, and done that, I actually have more of a problem with that than anything else. I think that, to me, taints the entire thing. It just does to me. Do you disagree? I agree. Um, that's you know, I've had people say to me, oh, can I review this? And I'm like, are you, are you kidding me? That's really not how journalism works. That's how PR works. Right. And it's absolutely not how journalism works. And if people don't like the quote that you choose to include, this happens all the time in radio, especially because people hear their own voice saying the thing that that maybe they wish they hadn't said or wish they had said more articulately or whatever. But you don't get to choose which part of the sentence that you said goes into this. Or you just don't. And that's just that's what it's about. Kevin, you're giving me the stink eye right now. I'm not giving the stink eye. I'm thinking about it. And the narrative that Sean Penn spins as they're talking about, you know, one of the first things they talk about is like, why are they doing 
the interview, why do you want to talk to me and, and all this other stuff. Sean Penn apparently says that, you know, that he, he's just going to tell it like it is. And and El Chapo's like, I, I was never a nun. You know, so it seemed to be like there was already this this agreement that there was, you know, transparency, like it was going to be warts and all. And so then to somehow have a deal where uh, warts and all, but let me look at it first. <laughs> exactly. Um, Toby, what were you going to say? In most cases, the person who'd have an objection isn't going to send, you know, people to your house to, you know, kidnap your kids. <laughs> I mean, I mean, seriously. Would you like it's, to make an edit out, Chapo? Okay, go right ahead. Well, do you remember when Anonymous said they were going to out, like, people who were in the Sinaloa cartel? And the Sinaloa cartel is like, you do that, we are going to find you, we're going to kill you. And they've totally backed off. No, the, the, those cartels have actually used IP addresses to find reporters and people even just tweeting and Facebooking about cartels have been brutally murdered or in some cases have just disappeared and their bodies have been found in a hole later. So I don't think I want to do the rest of this podcast. I think it's probably smart to... Yeah, we should just end it there. Yeah, before <laughs> before we start Sorry, getting downloads and... Uh, yeah. <laughs> Wow, didn't El Chapo seem like awfully cool? In yeah, that he article? was a great looking guy. His taco sounded delicious. With his, mm. um, with his shirt unbuttoned like that. <laughs> it's quite manly. And I'm reading this quote now. He says, I don't usually drink, but I want to drink with you. Oh, God. How romantic. Okay, well, we should probably wrap it up on that note. Toby. If our listeners, our very loyal listeners who'd like you to be here every week, would like to interact with you on Twitter, how can they find you there? At TobyBallNH. And Laura Bricker, what is your Twitter handle? At Laura Bricker, at L-A-R-A-B-R-I-C-K-E-R. And Kevin Flynn, if people want to tweet with you, how can they do that? Uh, I am at Nancy Grace. And if you want to send me a tweet, you can find me at Reb Lavoie. Our little show is also on Twitter, at Crime Writers On. So if you've got questions you want to answer, or you just want to interact, send us a tweet. We will tweet you back. Or you can leave a comment on our very lively Facebook page. Just search for Crime Writers On Serial on Facebook. You can also send an email with your questions and comments or voice memos to crimewriterson at gmail.com. Our theme song was performed by the New York Ska Jazz Ensemble and used with permission of Rocksteady Freddy, the saxophone player you hear there. You can find out more about all the crime writers at our website, crimewriterson.com. While you're there, do some shopping with that Amazon link. You can even bookmark it if you want. It's a great way to support the show by buying all the stuff you are planning to buy anyway. On behalf of all of the crime writers, thank you so much for listening this week. Leave a review on iTunes if you can. We will catch you next week discussing Serial once again, we hope, of course, unless they change their production schedule. So whatever happens, we will catch you later. Hey, Laura. Yeah, I can hear you. I'm trying to get Toby, so just hold on one sec. What's going on behind you? My husband's getting fire for the wood stove. I'm relegated to the porch. That is so... Um, <laughs> New England? So New England. I know, that's actually kind of a cool studio. Oh, oh Jesus. That, that, now, that was my space heater because so where my office is on the porch, there's no heat. <laughs> so you have a space heater and you're surrounded with firewood? Is that what I'm... Yeah, the wood is all behind me for the wood stove. And then I have my little space heater because I'm kind of a wimp when it comes to cold. Because that's what you want to have is firewood behind you and a space heater in front of you. Can you remind us, what does your husband do for a living again? He is a fire chief. And I have to tell you, <laughs> I once set my house on fire. It was a bad scene. What? It wasn't my fault before you say anything.
Meet Stacy. Stacy's on the hunt for a new pair of trendy glasses. Call me picky, but I just can't find the one. Luckily for Stacy, Walmart Vision has virtual try-on. Now she can try on hundreds of frames virtually, then upload her prescription and get new glasses delivered right to her door. Really? <laughs> yeah, really. Well, the hunt just took a turn for the better. Buy your next pair of glasses with virtual try-on from Walmart. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart. Restrictions apply. See walmart.com for details.